0: The following episode of the 9pm Edict contains strong language, fossils, politics and adult themes.
1: Saturday, the 22nd of January 2022. The summer series continues, as does that goddamn global pandemic. So... Inevitably, we're joined once more by science communicator and dinosaur evangelist, Upali divasekra and infectious diseases physician, Dr Trent Yarwood. In this episode, we discuss some of the weird and quite frankly stupid supposed COVID remedies.
0: The problem is that that's not actually how reality and chemistry works, of course.
1: We marvel at the real medical advances.
2: It's worth remembering that three years ago, COVID 19 didn't actually exist
1: and while size doesn't matter as the saying goes
0: but a 10 meter one that's huge no one has ever found one that is so big
1: hello i'm stillgarion. this is the 9pm hot buttered cuttlefish of the plague times with upali divisecra and dr trent yarwood and you'll hear why eventually oh and we recorded this a week ago Upali Divasekra and Dr. Trent Yarwood. Uh, hello, thank you for joining us.
0: Hello, thanks for
2: having us back.
1: Now, Upali, at eight thirty-seven p.m. on New Year's Eve, you <laughs> tweeted, and I quote: "Trent and I should do a drunk medical researchers edition where we bitch and moan while super drunk." Are you super drunk?
0: Uh, no. And
2: Sorry. you're not either, are you, Trent? Uh, no, but I do have a gin and tonic on my desks.
1: Well, so do I, actually. Uh, I should say we're... I a gin and Although and tonic. this is... Oh. So although it's um, probably Thursday or beyond when you're listening to this, as we record, it's Saturday afternoon and uh, it's all quite lovely.
0: And I've made myself a very healthy breakfast smoothie, so I'm not fulfilling this brief at all.
1: We'll have to come back to it. Now, look... <laughs> I had hoped we could start 2022 without having to talk about the pandemic, but here we are. Oh,
0: still. How how sweetly naive of you.
2: <laughs> I I know. How how are we all feeling about it? People keep saying to me, even now, they say, "Trent, you're an infection specialist. You must must be loving this pandemic stuff." Oh, and what? <laughs> if I could actually strangle them when they ask me that, I would, because, you know, I don't think there's any of my colleagues who are actually enjoying well, I don't think there was any of my colleagues who were enjoying it when it started. And Now, two years on, we are well over it. Well, why, yeah, why would you enjoy it?
1: I don't know. Look, I know you probably can't comment on this clip I'm about to play because it's from Queensland's Chief Health Officer, John Gerard. But there are some thoughts to bounce off. Here he is. Um, it's just under a minute. Here he is from uh, just the other day. I think what inevitably happens when you have an outbreak and something new like this um, and I've been through this a few times myself, once you actually start to see a few patients, particularly those who haven't treated COVID before, once they start to see patients with COVID, they realise, well, we're actually no different to other patients that we're used to looking after. And that initial anxiety settles down. And I, I, I've, I've experienced that personally myself with COVID. I experienced that with Ebola in West Africa. Once you see these patients and you you, you realise they're just people, like other patients you're used to seeing, and I think that anxiety will settle. The anxiety of the unknown? I think, so. I think it is the anxiety of the unknown. And once you realise that, well, it's, you know, it's not, there's nothing mystical or magical about it. It's just, it's just another respiratory virus. And, and in this case, we've got an effective vaccine. Um, and uh, I, I think that's it. I think it's, the, as you exactly said, it's the fear of the unknown. Now, the thing that struck me about that is that the fear of the unknown might be there with the doctors and nurses who eventually work out some routines and some procedures and go, oh, all right, this is another COVID patient. We know kind of what to do now, which two years in we, we presumably do. But that's that's not how the punters think, is it? That's, that's a, a medical professional think, not a, oh, dear, the shops are empty, my friends are getting sick fear.
2: Look, I could actually talk about this sort of stuff all day. I I think um, plague psychology is actually really fascinating. Um, You know, there's a a lot of baggage, if you like, from the bad old days when, um, you know, diseases were seen as being punishments from gods or, Mm -hmm. you know, other terrible things. And, you know, if you think about the whole, um, the etymology of plague, it comes from, um, you know, the same roots as meaning unclean. So there's, there's this kind of stigma about disease and filth. And, and, you know, people say to me, oh, gee, Trent, you're an infection doctor. And they sort of take a step back and put their hands behind their back and say, I, I hope you wash your hands. So,
1: because, oh, uh, yeah. I mean, gee, you, you, you hadn't thought of that
2: before, had you? Indeed, indeed. That, that's usually the prelude to them saying, oh, I had this uncle who got Golden Staff in hospital, or can oh, you have a look yeah. at this manky ulcer on my leg? Um, but,
0: uh, you know, charming.
2: Infectious disease has has a lot of baggage, and uh, you know the fact that there is now literally infection everywhere is messing with people's minds.
1: Upali, mm. how are things? I mean, you're you're in Melbourne, uh, that, and I'm in Sydney, and Trent's uh, up in Northern Queensland, Cairns. Mm-hmm. It's a different perspective in each place, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, I'd have to say that I think the notion of plague psychology that's that's a really good way of putting it and i i think i've been harping on about this for a long while um even pre-pandemic but yeah the idea that infectious disease is about dirt and uncleanliness you know it's like um in 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 com- in various comedies you've got People, uh, you've got lepers who are—I don't know—is that the correct term? I could use that, now? People who have leprosy, lepers. lepers mm. uh, you know. Yes,
1: we probably should say people with with leprosy. People with leprosy. Because it's about the disease, Pe- not
2: the People person. with Hansen's disease, in fact, because it was renamed because of the stigma around being a leper.
0: All oh, right. Oh, good. That's okay. Hansen's disease. Mm. Okay. So people with Hansen's disease, you know, in in portrayed in I quite in, like
1: some of their music. <laughs> thank you.
0: Still, thank you. Um, uh, so people with Hansen's disease, you know, covered head-to-toe ringing bells, saying unclean, unclean. And we, we like to think of it as something from the dark past or something that other people around the world and countries we consider, in you know, less less clean and inferior to us. Um, that's what happens. And so now it's like, well, we don't know how to deal with infectious disease. We don't really have to deal with even – basic things like polio on on a wide scale and so we've forgotten how to deal with it and we've forgotten how to deal with these uh uh, sorts of situations but the thing is that it's it's it is different for everyone and i don't just mean state to state like for a medical professional okay they you know uh, from what from what the chief health officer is saying there what i can gather is that okay maybe people were very panicked uh doctors were very panicked about what to do or medical professionals were and now they're not and that's fine Um, you know disease is a disease and you know you know you learn how to treat it you learn how to deal with it Mm -hmm. Um, but I think the main issue around COVID has always been about uh, infectiousness and how we deal with it because there were always conflicting messages from various organizations very early on and so people have been able to kind of harness that uncertainty like you know is it spread through aerosols, uh, should we wear masks, all of that. What level of safety do we do we have to deal with here? And because that messaging has been so inconsistent and, un, and unclear, I think it, that's part of the problem uh, in how people are responding uh, to it and dealing with it. And uh, you, it's difficult when you have a country with six states and two territories and every mm-hmm. single jurisdiction has a different approach to dealing with it. There's no consistency. Uh, and so it just confuses people further.
1: And what's also been confusing, I think, is that we have learned, obviously, in the course of the last couple of years, but many people, I think, end up being more confused by the changing knowledge rather than going, oh, right, we used to think that. We've learned something different now, so that's good. Um, But they see it as a bad
2: thing. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: and that's part of that's another problem. I think uh, in many ways the way that people have come to view science is genuinely something of a replacement to religion. And so scientific facts are seen as immutable rather than things that we have the best evidence for at the time. Then it becomes at a whole other level when it's to do with disease uh, and, you know, it affects your family, it affects your children, um it affects your whole life in this instance. So the idea that this is something that we're constantly learning from and it's okay, we're going to keep acting on the best information at the time, is a whole different thing. Uh, it, it's not. It's not a way of thinking um, that we have as a community.
2: It's. It's worth remembering that three years ago, COVID-19 didn't actually exist. Nobody yeah. had heard of it. SARS, SARS was an abstraction. It was that virus that was in Hong Kong and Toronto and a few other places a, and, a few years ago. And twenty
0: years ago, yeah.
2: Mm, mm. And you know, to think that we now have amazingly effective vaccines and about four or five different therapeutic options for people in hospital, and we now know that that you know the way that it spreads and and the epidemiology and who's most vulnerable and all that sort of stuff in three years is actually really amazing.
0: It is. It's stunning. I
1: was fascinated by a comment uh, on Twitter the other day from Possum Comitatus, Mr Politics, who's uh, who's a political chap. But he said people who don't spend a lot of time online are much more chill about what's happening with the COVID transition than the very online. There is something in that for all of us and it has nothing to do with being informed. And this feeds into something that I f- talk about a lot. If you do... It, it, you know, saturate yourself in the daily news cycle and every single little change, you do end up kind of running around like a headless chook and fearful of everything. When, if you just don't bother looking at the news for a couple of days, just look (laughs) to see what the restrictions are. You, you as... uh, Okay, I'm pausing because I'm actually all for... People understanding what's happening to them. But at the same time, you you actually don't need to understand it down to every single level. And there's another peer reviewed paper out which says that this particular vaccine has another 0.3 percentage points of efficacy in this specific circumstance.
2: I was just talking to my neighbour as I was taking the rubbish down before I came to record this and, uh, you know, we were just discussing the fact five years ago who, other than a healthcare professional in Australia, could have named the chief health officer in their state? Now they're like these mega media celebrities, particularly if you're Brett Sutton. Um, And I was also
1: thinking, all right, you had the flu vaccine last year? And I go, yeah, okay, which one? Which one did you have? Exactly. Mm -hmm.
2: Exactly. No one knows. You just turn up and it happens. Yeah, exactly. And I had my little fancy notification that I'd been on Twitter for eleven years the other day, and, and <laughs> it's, it's and that a, was just that one day. God help <laughs> no, us! <right>. <laughs> it, it was it was a very different place eleven years ago, and I think now it it you know it rots it rots your brain almost as much as Facebook does.
0: Yeah, I I, I <laughs> do feel like um, there's definitely a difference in Twitter from ten years ago to now. Uh, it feels a lot less fun. <laughs> But that's that's long. That boundary has been crossed. You know, we we left that long ago. But yeah, uh, I think that it's it's like Facebook. It's a place that can amplify uncertainty uh, Mm. to a ridiculous extent. Because uh, sure, we have uh, what is what was or is. I guess uh, Trent, you can comment on that. On a a very infectious respiratory disease that is very easily spread. in a world where people have grown accustomed to going, well, you know what, I'm going to do my own research now on this. Uh, and so people who are, when, when I'm dealing with like work colleagues and, and uh, many of them are uh, sort of in their early 20s and, and they're not even remotely concerned about it in because it's like we've got the vaccine, we're fine. Uh, or we might get it, we're just going to have to deal with it when it comes. Um, but instead online you've got people who are claiming vast conspiracies um, and reading every single preprint um, that who knows has written.
1: Well, I might jump ahead and just mention uh, that the latest thing uh, from the COVIDiots is nebulizing hydrogen peroxide.
0: God help us.
1: Which, yeah. Um, and, I, and, and as I'm you not can see, there's a specialist. photograph of a chap uh, with his, you know, kind of self-built asthma inhaler thing Now, hydrogen peroxide is what you use to bleach your hair if you haven't got anything a little less fierce.
0: It's used as Um,
2: a... I'm not a toxicologist or a respiratory specialist, but as a doctor, I'm going to say to all of your listeners, don't do that. That's stupid.
0: (laughs) Mm. Hydrogen peroxide is often used, yeah, as a kind of a bleach. Um, The usual kind of bleach is uh, hypochlorite, but this is uh, a milder Mm. one uh, and we use it for, you know... People used to actually use it in a very diluted form, I will add, as a sterilizing agent uh, or, you know, to get dirt off their fingernails or whatever. But it's not something you should be inhaling. Um, the main reason is that, it, you know, it kind of releases this uh, little radical oxygen molecule. And so that's what causes the damage. <laughs> so you've it's H2O2. I'm, I'm,
1: I was confused too. I can see. I can see why some of them are confused because there is available, at least in the US, a thing called food grade hydrogen peroxide, and
0: that is for cleaning up stuff. And by food grade,
1: stuff. yeah, that's <laughs> right. It means you can bleach your chicken or something like that. Yeah, which you, is can, a thing you can you can quickly
0: sterilise your vegetables. Uh, and and the thing is, you have to rinse it off afterwards. It's not like you're going <laughs> to keep eating with it. Uh, yes. because it's going to mess with the chemistry of your body, so please do not inhale. Suitable hydrogen to peroxide. be
2: used near food is not the same as suitable to be used as food.
0: Exactly.
2: Uh, I, I am a little bit intrigued by this though. Like are they are they thinking that it's the surface disinfection? Like you like kind of like you wipe down the inside of your airways with peroxide and it gets rid of the bugs, or is it you know I mean the- it will get
1: rid of the bugs on the uh, and, and uh, your as lungs. well as
2: other things and yes. your lungs.
1: But you know, <laughs>
0: Well, I think I I feel like there's a, a going back to the idea of this being about you know uncleanliness. I feel like a lot of the responses, and and particularly, I think these come from wellness, um, the wellness movement. Uh, The the Mm. bad end of the wellness movement, shall we say, the not good end, uh, the fanciful end, where it's basically this idea that you've got to purify (laughs) things and you're purifying your body or whatever. And so if you add something or you make your food extremely clean or whatever it is, you're you're cleansing yourself, which is why people think that injecting bleach or consuming bleach in some fashion uh, will help prevent disease, which is not the case if I put it in a polite way.
1: Well, friend of the pod, Dr Adam, uh, who is uh, currently up in the Northern Territory. He's a, 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 a doctor in the public system and he happens to have been uh, shunted to the Northern Territory because they uh, they were in need of doctors. And he said, look, he, he said to me this morning, fighting infections is easy, surely. I just start everyone on uh, meropenem." Um,
2: so Adam has oh. obviously <laughs> is followed a little bit of... Yes, he, he is. Thank God so for that. I, I, get, I, I get this a lot. Um,
1: okay, so we better explain what meropenem is. It so is a meropenem. Well, it is an intravenous antibiotic. It says here. Indeed, and, and so that'll fix everything, won't it?
2: Yeah. So meropenem no. used to be marketed. Um, with the um this terrible terrible ad from in the medical journals it had like this sort of fuzzy picture of two people pushing a stretcher like you know obviously towards the theater or towards the intensive care somewhere somewhere important in the hospital that very sick people go and the slogan was when the pic- when the picture isn't clear and you need to take action right now
1: and so meropen- well, they, well, that that's exactly his point. He's he's doing his ward rounds. He can't be asked doing it. We? Well, fuck this. Just give him a shot of this.
2: Yeah. So meropenem <laughs> yeah. is basically the most broad-spectrum antibiotic that that there is in existence. And oh, okay. Um, yeah. And we tend to use it in hospitals. Well, obviously in hospitals because it's intravenous. But for people who have either got extremely resistant organisms, for people who are very very sick, and and we uh, you we don't know what's going on. So there is a, a little bit of that in. There there um, because it basically kills most bacteria except for a few of the very very resistant ones well there you go perfect yes
0: yeah and the important thing to remember is don't over prescribe antibiotics don't ask your doctor for antibiotics when they're not necessary
2: yes COVID a virus yeah (laughs) well yes I'm very
1: pleased that when I was seeing my own GP about you know, just some general stuff once, I, I did mention, oh, yeah, and I've been fighting a cold for the last few days, and he just looked at me and said, well, what, what do you want me to do about it? Very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said, nothing. I, I just want you to write down the symptoms just in case it turns out to be something else because you're meant to be keeping my medical records. Well, yeah, I, think, I
0: think the other problem with that is like if you if you have a cold and you, you really are too sick to be at work, you have to get a medical certificate for it and that's the only reason why you've turned up.
1: <laughs> well, no, I, it was, I was there for something else and being a freelancer, I mean, whatever. No yeah. one's going to pay you sick leave. <laughs> you, you, you don't have well, that. Well,
0: you know, for the rest of us who have sick leave.
1: Yeah, for, for people would like proper jobs.
2: I think that's a really important thing, bringing it back to COVID, though, that, um, uh, you know, insecure work, uh, people who, for example, work as casual patient care assistants in nursing homes often have jobs across multiple different facilities, uh, and they don't have any sick leave because they're casual, so they need to turn up to work, and the, mm. you know, mm, the system so. in capital letters and inverted commas um, really lets them down because there is no sick leave for them and if they don't go to work they don't get paid and because they're all casuals if they don't turn up for a shift because they're sick then they go oh well that person didn't turn up for their shift so we're not going to offer them anymore. So there's all of these structural incentives to get people to go to work when they're sick which has been a major factor in um, healthcare institutional spread of COVID people working across different sites. Do you
1: think that this might end up changing that?
2: Uh-huh. Uh, it will for a little while. I think now uh, we've very much got the don't go to work if you're sick thing in our brain, but soon COVID will go away as an issue and then people will go, oh, well, COVID's gone now, so it doesn't matter if I go into work with my coughs and sniffles. And, and I would very, very much like that not to happen, but I, I doubt that it will be a sustained change.
1: Shall we talk about the tennis player a bit?
0: Uh, for you
1: Mrs Djokovic.
2: Well... Someone
1: pointed out, in fact, this is a piece from New Yorker magazine, which has been tracking his stuff. He's been into this, uh, shall we say, alternative health stuff and welder stuff uh, for quite a while. Um, He's convinced that his muscles are weaker when they're uh, proximate to wheat. Um, someone did a little trick there, which con artists use to convince him about stuff. Uh, his uh, Spanish coach, Pepe Imaz, or Imaz, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce Spanish, uh, has evangelized about the transformative power of long hugs. And uh, Djokovic has explained that polluted water can be purified by human consciousness because water molecules, quote, React to our emotions to what is being said.
0: So, this idea that water molecules react to human thought is a very old uh, trope that's been floating around the internet for literally decades and it's always Mm. about how someone who was really angry or they played heavy metal music and the water crystals formed and they look like this and then someone played a meditated nearby or they uh played some classical music and then the water crystals were beautiful and structured uh and this idea that our thoughts influence the fabric of reality is is an old one it's just not you know generally accepted uh scientifically or medically. Um, the that's other a very thing diplomatic
2: is, way of saying that it's bullshit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, it's, yeah, pretty much, yeah. Uh, the problem is that that's not actually how reality and chemistry works, of course. Um, like, please do not go and drink polluted water. Don't t- get a bit of polluted water or whatever and, you know, sit there and meditate in front of it. It will still make you very sick. It's not going to purify it. But the other thing is, I think that uh, these sorts of treatments, um, a little bit more, shall I say, folksy treatments, um, you know, based on naturopathy and all that sort of thing, are quite a bit more popular without wishing to stereotype, at least in the uh, former Eastern Bloc. And um, Mm. there's just a, a, you know, for example, if you think about um, salt therapy, uh, that is not necessarily It's only something that's emerging as a treatment form in, in the West. And, and, and to be honest, until I found that there were actually articles that suggest it might be effective, I thought that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, um, where basically people sit in rooms where the salt has been uh, kind of partially ionised. But it does actually help people with some lung conditions. Uh, so if you're taking a holistic view of medicine, that idea will be very appealing. Mm. Right. So, as a
2: as a general thing, though, I think it comes back to what we were talking about to do with uncertainty. You know, in uncertain times, people want to take actions that give them some control over the situation, and uh, you know, whether that be inhaling bleach or um, you know meditating in front of water, it's it's a way of people feeling like their actions have some um, way of you know they're doing something to prevent themselves from getting themselves. Yeah, yeah, as opposed to just staying home and washing their hands and, and, you know, not going to work when they're sick, which would be much more useful. And (laughs) a vaccine
1: is something that you don't really quite understand. Um, I mean, and you can't see a direct result, of course. I mean, you wash your hands, you end up having clean hands. If nothing else, your hands feel nicer. Um, After a vaccine, you actually end up feeling worse for a couple of days. And, you know, it's not fun. It's not something you chose to do. It was something you were told to do. But get your
2: vaccine, people. Maybe maybe you can try meditating in front of the vaccine just before they put it in your arm and that'll make the, the vaccine <laughs> res- resonate in a more appropriate way for you.
1: Or as we heard in uh, last week's podcast, uh, the trick to, in fact, neutralise the vaccine and kill off all of those 5G nano-beasties uh, is to drink your own urine. <sighs>
2: Look, urine oh, is sterile, God. so from an infection point of view, it's probably not going to give you a nasty bacterial infection. Oh, but I it's thought just...
1: that was one of those old tales that it's sterile. It actually well, is it's,
2: sterile. It's sterile unless you get an infection in it, which happens relatively commonly. But it's, oh. um, my, my primary reason for recommending against that is just because it would be really gross.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. Oh, and geez. on that note, I think we should move away from all this, yes. Uh, a quick break for the housekeeping. In the coming week, on Wednesday, we have a public holiday for Australia Day, so I'm going to take a break from the summer series for one week, but I am very pleased to announce that the next episode, which will be uh, round about the week after that, we will be joined once more by Dr Space Junk herself, Dr Alice Gorman, as well as her space archaeology colleague, Dr. Justin Walsh from Chapman University in Orange, California, United States of America, because this is very exciting. This is the thing that we wanted to talk about for months, and we can finally talk about it. It's the International Space Station Archaeological Project. Yes, this is the very first archaeology that has happened off the earth. Uh, so Dr. Alice and Dr. Justin are going to be looking at, indeed are looking at, because it's already started, um, they're looking at the way humans interact with the objects around them on the International Space Station. So using like traditional archaeological techniques, but in space. Uh, have a look at issarchaeology.org on, on the web and you can see about the project. Uh, and do let us know if you have trigger words or a conversation topic related to that. Or space coming up. I'm really looking forward to that. And that will be the next episode of this podcast. Uh, and this podcast is, of course, Uh, made possible by you, the generous listener. Uh, And for this episode and the next four and the last one, uh, it's thanks especially to all the people who contributed to the 9pm Summer Series 2022 crowdfunding campaign. Eventually I will mention you all, unless you want to be anonymous, but today I really want to thank all the people who are the citizens and foot soldiers of Media Freedom who who do make this possible. I, I know some of you buy trigger words and conversation topics, and that's great fun, but everything helps. And I really want to thank today the six people who are the Media Freedom citizens who contributed a basic tip. You know who you are, not least because, well you know who you are and your names are on the website unless you wanted to be anonymous. And also thank you to all of the foot soldiers for media freedom who gave a slightly less basic tip. In alphabetical order, I've given It's Bob Ogden, Daniel O'Connor, Errol Cavett, Garth Kid, Jamie Morrison, Jim Campbell, John Avocado, Katrina Jetty, Luke Coston, Mark Akel, uh, or is it Arkell? I really must Find that out. Michael Cowley, Miriam Mulcahy, Oliver Townsend, Paul McGarry, Peter McCrudden, Peter McCrudden again, for some reason, probably generosity. Uh, Rowan Pierce, Susan Rankin, and three more people who uh, chose to remain anonymous. Thank you all, and if you'd like to join those people. Uh, I mean, that particular campaign's over, but you can always go to the 9 com slash tip. That's the 9 com slash tip. While you're there, I mean, a few dollars into the tip jar is great, but do consider a subscription. That just saves me hassling you and you might buy yourself a trigger word or maybe a conversation topic to throw into the mix, just like will be happening very shortly on this very episode. And if you don't want to do... Any of that, look, that's fine. But if you enjoy the podcast, just tell your friends. The more the merrier. And I think, you know, this is a good episode. Tell them about this one. Tell them they should listen to this episode. Do it. Do it now. Well, I think, Oopalee and Dr Trent, it's time to to look at some trigger words. We've got a few that have been sent in specifically for you, uh, actually. And uh, uh, Justin Warren, friend of the pod, since uh, uh, he is taking revenge here on Trent for his trigger words, uh, he sent in (laughs) two. One of them is fungi.
2: Well, I should just start by wishing um, Justin's Freedom of Information request happy birthday. Um, There was a a rumour on the Twitter that Justin was actually going to bake a birthday cake for his most longest running FOI request, which is something to do with one government information technology omni-shambles. I'm not sure which one exactly.
1: I believe it's to do with the robo-debt thing. And Mm. I will say, yes, um, uh, earlier today as we record this, uh, Justin Warren did do an excellent presentation on how to do your own freedom of information requests in Australia. I will link in the podcast uh, notes to that presentation. He's put it all online, including, yes, one of his freedom of information requests that's gone to appeal had its fifth birthday this week, so he made it a cake. Uh, (laughs) Congratulations, It's one of those things... I know. The the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner is so underfunded that once you've gone through everything else and you're asking them to review the thing, even before it goes to an appeal, it's usually a year before they can even assign a case officer. Oh to your God. request wow, that's and wild. then that's they wild. go I to why. the department <laughs> yeah <laughs> they go to the department and say or oh, you need to do this then the department will appeal to the administrative appeals tribunal and then after that if they're still uh, unhappy and don't want to release the information they can go to the hi- uh, to the federal court and beyond it's just ridiculous so yes five years anyway uh, yes, happy birthday to a Freedom of Information request, and now fungi.
2: I think infectious diseases physicians uh, either really uh, like fungi and fungal infections, or really don't like them. And <laughs> I have to put myself in the really don't like them category.
0: What, um, why? For they? me, I oh, mean, how can you actually it, really like them?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, if you really if you actually grew mushrooms in your groin or something, that might be interesting.
0: Or would at least still culinarily
1: be, adventurous.
0: It would still be enormous concern, enormously concerning. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> so look, most most fungi that cause human disease are actually um, yeasts rather than molds. So things. All right. So so when you when you sort of clas- fungal fungal classification is an absolute bin fire.
0: Oh <laughs> Most
2: most medically important fungi have two different names: one as the yeast form and one as the mold form. It's it's really very complicated, um, but um, as a rule most of the so things like athlete's foot tinea they're they're molds they're cutaneous sort of infections that don't really cause um much in the way of bother, and you don't really get to see an infection specialist just because you've got a bit of foot rot um if you've got yeast in in your blood
1: foot foot rot
0: does sound casually.
2: (laughs) casually
1: unpleasant yes
2: um, if you've got yeast like Candida um, growing in your blood, though, that is a that is bad news, and, that that, extremely and that's extremely bad proper, news. Yes, extremely bad news. And the the risks for getting that are having a, you know terribly pr- profoundly suppressed immune system, like people who are getting chemotherapy, um, people who have been on very broad spectrum antibiotics, like the aforementioned meropenem for a very long time. Um, you know, people who have got sort of complex gut problems because you tend to have have Candida living in your gut, and so if you had complicated bowel surgery and you've been on intravenous feeding for a while um yeah fungi. like i say they don't they don't most of our infections that we we deal with in hospitals are bacterial but um when the fungi come along they're either not at all serious and something we just ignore or very 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 serious indeed
0: trent can i just ask about uh just to sorry still um trent Mm. can i just ask about fungi a bit more is there uh any sort of emerging issues with with fungi? Like are they emerging as something that would be of tremendous concern? Because um, so we don't the- really have a lot of treatments for them.
2: The the big one from the last few years, and I'm I have COVID brain haze, and I can't remember exactly what year it was, um, but the most recent sort of emerging fungal pathogen is called Candida auris. So okay. there's Candida is a is a genus. There's lots of different species. Um, the one that causes most infections we see in hospitals, Candida albicans, um, but Candida auris, which is called auris because it looks gold when you grow it on the um, on the plates in oh. the lab, uh, is Remind of you significance of else. because. it's... <laughs> Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, because it's very um, resistant to the standard antifungals that we tend to use. And and you're right, there's not a lot of different treatments that we have for fungal infections. There's sort of basically three classes of antifungal medications. And, and Candida auris is very, very resistant to, to most of them. And so it was causing a problem. It's that same sort of high virulence, um, high mortality infection that Candida albicans causes, but the right. treatment options are, are much more constrained.
1: So does that mean that like with bacteria if we over-prescribe antibiotics, we'll get runaway bacterial problems in the future. Does the same thing apply to, to, to fungal infection? Could we see something go nasty simply because we don't know how to kill it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we, we see that a lot in hospitals as well. So, um, you know, you can you can buy um, uh, fluconazole, which is the most commonly used antifungal over-the-counter for um, you know, it's, it's marketed to women who get thrush, often from a cause of ba- course of bacterial antibacterial antibiotics that they probably didn't need, um, and so then they go to the chemist. say, I've got terrible thrush; it's really itchy, it's driving me insane. So they take some fluconazole, it makes the thrush go away. And over time, we've seen the the effectiveness of fluconazole against those infections that we see in hospital in people who are much much more unwell, where the infections are much more serious than than you know just having had a bit of thrush. And I will point out that I don't have a vagina and have never had thrush but I understand that it's terrible but you know in the big scheme of things having candida growing in your blood versus having it you know a bit of thrush from some antibiotics is sort of not quite on the same page. Sure. Uh, And yeah look if you (laughs) if you overuse any sort of antimicrobial it will it will encourage resistance whether that be in fungi or bacteria or viruses or or whatever but we we do tend to think more about it in bacteria than
0: the other classes of, of bugs. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that I've been concerned about for a while because um, aside from antibiotic resistance, certainly there's been a suggestion that emerging fungal resistance is going to be a very big issue. There's not enough research done, uh, particularly from a medical point of view. So um, that's uh, interesting to hear. Uh, the other mm. thing is that um, with something like using fluconazole, it's like... It's, it's over-the-counter, the the amount of control that you have over its use is going to be extremely limited. You can't do anything about it. Uh, you know, if you've got to treat something like thrush, it has to be treated quickly, effectively, and it doesn't need a doctor for it to happen.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you, Justin, for that. We have a second one from Justin which we'll come back to in a moment, but Gavin Costello has sent in the word Bryston, which according to Wikipedia, is a village on the Isle of Wight, six miles southwest of Newport, which I think, uh, I don't know whether any of us are experts on villages um, on the Isle of Wight, but I do note that there is a dinosaur thingy called the Brystonius from there.
0: Well, it turns out that um, this rather interesting and novel dinosaur is, is, um, it's basically that, well, first of all, can I just say that I'm sort of amazed at how many dinosaur fossils are in the British Isles, considering how tiny they are. Sure, they're probably, they're mm. part of Europe uh, geologically, but still, it's like, wow, you guys have a lot of dinosaurs. Um, and uh, that's so cool. <laughs> like, it, can you imagine, like, you're on the Isle of Wight, you're on holiday, and then suddenly it's like, oh, there's, look at that, we've just found, we found some fossils on the beach. Um, and that is something that you know, is, is very much the case in parts of England. So Brightstonius is uh, actually some... So it, it was an existing fossil that a PhD student called Jeremy Lockwood uh, decided that he would go through all of the fossils uh, that had been found for, on the Isle of Wight. And so this is something that people had already found and he realised that it's actually a novel species all the time. Wow. Yeah, so all the time most of the fossils that they'd found on the Isle of Wight were iguanodons. Um, so iguanodons, like the first uh kind of dinosaur that was classified and described. It was hugely they're the popular. Two,
1: so they, they're the ones who are on their hind legs and they look like they got their thumbs up all the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's it. They're, they're very awkward-looking dinosaurs, sort of, you know. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, And uh, so Guanadon and um, I, think, yeah, I think that's – there's a few, a few other ones, but the way that it's sort of been portrayed since Victorian times has changed greatly, shall we say. <laughs> um, but I think that – so it's it's kind of – this goes back to what we were talking about earlier about how uh, when sometimes you need to re-examine your existing samples and, and, and evidence and that's something that happens quite a lot in paleontology. So now that our information and our knowledge about these things is better, this student has gone back, Jeremy's gone back and had a look at these fossils and gone, oh, Actually, this is a completely different species. So it's good and fun to know that these kinds of monsters roamed the Isle of Wight in ancient times, probably before it was the Isle of Wight, but, you know. <laughs> so, I still yeah.
1: were inbred anyway. <laughs> so, um,
0: yeah, it was her Thank you,
1: Gavin. But I, I also saw this week, uh, speaking of dinosaurs, though this one technically isn't a dinosaur, a huge ichthyosaur fossil was found In Rutland, in the East Midlands. It's about 10 meters long. There's a a photo which I've linked to, which shows the guy who discovered it just lying down next to it. This is an Now, these are kind of like. I said, okay, they're not dinosaurs, but kind of the dinosaur equivalent to sharks, aren't they?
0: They're pretty astounding. Yeah, like like, like the original sea monsters. Like one of the. Again, with Iguanodon, one of the first. Sort of ancient, sea, ancient creatures to be discovered, and so they fire up the the, the public imagination like nothing else. I've seen iguanodon, uh, sorry, iguanodon, um, ichthyosaur, ichthyosaur um, fossils in in the Harvard Museum. And uh, they're amazing. They're sort of like, yeah, like a cross between a shark and a dolphin. But a 10-metre one, that's huge. No one has ever found one. That is so big. That's amazing. Can you just imagine, like, ancient seas with these guys floating around? And very early times, uh, you know, early prehistoric times was really the – the domain of the reign of the fishes, and so to find such a large ichthyosaur is very unusual. Um, but other fishes at the time were also gigantic. Like my favourite Dunkleosteus was uh, could go up to twelve meters, right?
1: <laughs> the, the what now?
0: Twelve? Uh, Dunkleosteus. I think that's how it's Duncleus- pronounced. I I I, I don't well, know how it's pronounced. We'll, we'll, link to, we'll link to one of them. Is oh, how
2: oh, I'll take your word for it. <laughs>
0: Anyway, Just to give big, you a
2: feeling about clampy. this
1: ichthyosaur, by the way, it's 50% bigger again than a, a white pointer shark, a great white shark.
0: That's so awesome. That is so <laughs> awesome. I'm so. So a great white thrilled. is,
1: you know, up to that, uh, like it, it's about, what's that, 20 feet. So seven meters long and way up to two and a half tons. So this is 50% longer. Large-ish. And therefore, by maths, probably about twice the weight for like five tonnes or something.
0: Like, like a small whale.
1: It's <laughs> incredible.
0: It's astounding. Check them out. And no one's kind of come up with a, or as far as I know, a, a good explanation of why life was so gigantic at the time.
1: Wasn't this back when there was more oxygen in the atmosphere because something?
0: Yeah, there, I think that was one suggestion. Yeah. But, uh, the, yeah. The,
1: therefore, these things could just. I, I mean, I'm not quite sure whether that was more percentage of oxygen in the atmosphere or whether there was a greater atmospheric pressure. So the partial pressure of oxygen is higher. Therefore, you can cross it. In. I should not speculate about this. I, stuff. I am I unclear in on it. Biology.
0: But, but something to think about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, thank you Gavin he, he did say he was also considering asking you about brinjal As in Sri Lankan pickles Oh, do you want to he hear about He was inspired it? to make some the other day
0: <laughs> I could talk about that Do uh, you I want like...
1: to talk about it?
0: <laughs> I could talk about it briefly uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure that Justin is partly asking Because brinjal is, uh, is actually a oh, South is Asian Gavin, actually. Sorry, Gavin Gavin, It's it's a South Asian word for um, eggplant It's an alternative Word for eggplant or, or aubergine, and it definitely makes pretty good pickle, even though I can't stand eggplant. So there are two kinds of pickle that you could have in Sri Lanka. Um, the first is sort of like your traditional pickle, and you know, uh, you, you well, it's we we tend to cook our pickles, so we cook them and then we store them. Uh, And that's one process using the same ingredients, spices, vinegars, all that sort of thing and salts. But the other kind of pickle that we have is called a moju and that involves deep frying onions and chilies and banana chilies and bits of eggplant slices of eggplant and then dousing them in a mix of vinegar and pepper and a little bit of salt. And then you just leave it all overnight and you've got a kind of a semi-instant pickle, which is actually really delicious because everything has been fried.
1: (laughs) Okay. okay, I'm I'm liking this. I, I, I don't want to do this as a cooking podcast, and this—except perhaps I should every every now and then. <laughs> I know the story then, yeah. of how this came about. <laughs> is that another friend of the pod, John O'Haysem, who uh, is Australian but lives in in one of the Gulf states, uh, went uh, took a holiday in Sri Lanka recently, and was posting lots of photographs of food from this resort he was staying at, and.
0: Yeah, it's kind of yeah. – um, I always forget how good Sri Lankan food can be. <laughs> we actually – because we – we t- uh, my family tends to cook sort of between Indian and Sri Lankan style, so we don't use coconut milk much. And um, the spicing oh, okay. that we use is, is uh, a little more Indian rather than Sri Lankan these days because Sri Lankan food is very heavily okay. flavoured. Uh, so there's mm. a local – there's a place that's about 200 metres from us that's a Sri Lankan um, takeaway – place, and the food is incredible. <laughs> I keep sneaking oh, okay. off we, there. We
1: need to name them. We need to name them. They're in Melbourne. They're in they Melbourne. Called...
0: They're called Cena's Kitchen. Uh, they do catering, and their hot-buttered uh-huh. uh, cuttlefish is to die for.
1: Oh. oh. I mean, you good. had me at hot and buttered, obviously, <laughs> but then when you said cuttlefish. <laughs> it's cuttlefish. Oh. It's pretty good. Right, let's move on very quickly. Thank you, <laughs> Uh, Justin Warren has another one for uh, Dr Trent. Well, both of you, really. My Health Record, Australia's (laughs) wonderful digital health innovation.
2: So I guess my first anecdote about My Health Record is that a a, a digital health... Academic who I won't name uh, threatened to report me to APRA because uh, a number of years ago, just before my health record um, started up, I was quite vocally anti-my health record because of its many problems and and mm-hmm. was a bit of a, a digital privacy wonk in my spare time. And yeah, he um, he threatened to report me to APRA because I was putting. So who's APRA? Uh, APRA is the Australian Health practitioner registration board it's like the the oh, national, okay. national equivalent of the medical board that it, essentially his argument was that i was putting the australian population at risk by vigorously advocating against my health record wow
0: okay how
1: do you have a view on on a hot political issue it's terrible yes. business but,
0: but you're also like a, a practicing doctor yeah yeah I mean, I mean that's
1: that's what they were trying to prevent i think <laughs>
0: <laughs> in being yeah but it's a also like-
1: doctor that's that's broadly their aim I think was to get him struck off.
0: Well yeah but also it's like he's a practicing doctor he might actually know something about it and has to use the thing. anyway
2: my, my health record is not very useful. so if you're thinking about weighing up the risks and benefits then the benefits aren't actually that much.
1: I will link to some of the stuff I wrote about it at the time and other people wrote about it at the time. It's, it's still there. It, it's interesting to note that uh, my uh, general practitioner, um, they, they, as a rule at, at their practice, uh, they have, if you get pathology requests done, the request form has pre-ticked the box saying "Do not upload to my health record," and in fact, when I did fill out one of I can't remember what form or, or other uh, relating to some other privacy related thing, and I'd I accident, accidentally or just chose to tick some yes share with New South Wales health thing, uh, he tore it up. He tore up my my consent form and oh, said, wow. "No, you you need to not tick that. We don't talk to them. Um, they're very strong on privacy practices there." Uh, Trent actually knows who I'm talking about I, mean, I uh, do I do
2: they're, yeah. they're they're a good bunch um yeah. I actually have a also have a post on my blog of of a roundup of some my health record stuff that I did which unfortunately all the links are broken because I've had to sort of hastily reassemble my blog from the wreckage um but the the post still works just don't don't the, the links are all a bit mangled if people are interested in reading it
1: mm. Mm. Just quietly, My Health Record, um, for, for a much cheaper price, you could just give everyone in Australia an encrypted USB key to keep their health records on and hang it on a chain around their neck. Actually, I've got a <laughs> Should funny... Should they be concerned?
2: I've got a funny story about that. A, um, uh, a At one stage, there was a significant concern about um, patient information being kept on unencrypted usbs and being randomly dropped or left you know everybody loses usb memory Mm. sticks all the time Mm -hmm. and so there was a big crackdown on um on using these unencrypted ones and so the public sector health agency that i worked for at the time which will remain nameless um, bulk ordered a large number of those securely you know super encrypted usb things
1: Um, ones with the fingerprint readers on them
2: uh no. no, no, it was one that oh, had you like get them now too. Yeah. They're fabulous. It was one that had like a software thingy that you had to like, you know, type credentials into. Um but the <laughs> <to verify>. because <laughs> Yeah yeah. But because um, you know, public sector IT is very paranoid and everything is locked down, the standard operating environment that we all used wouldn't let you run the security credentials thing. So <laughs> they spent this vast amount of money on these USB oh, bricks no. that could not actually be used for anything.
0: Oh, no. It's important. congratulations
1: to yet another Australian government organisation yep. doing Beautiful work with computering.
2: Elephant stamp for information security.
0: White elephant stamp.
2: Now, just quickly... Oh, I like that.
1: Oh, dear. Well, look, let's let's choose one final um, trigger word, not from the uh, glass jar of transparency, because I'm down in Sydney and didn't want to bring a glass jar with me, but from the chemist warehouse bag of translucency... Uh, There are in here a lot of little (laughs) folded up pieces of paper. This is such a class act.
0: He really is actually sifting through a chemist warehouse bag, I I wish to emphasise at this point for those of you listening. Oh, (laughs) yes.
1: Uh, this is from Silvano, who uh, outsourced the choice of uh, words to Twitter, and just which <laughs> was guaranteed to be successful. And so, on Twitter, Baxter's uh, has uh, chosen the word ointment, which is suitably health-related.
2: Uh, if your dermatologist suggests you use an ointment rather than a cream, then it's usually a marker that you, that the rash that they're trying to treat is a little bit more. Um, troublesome so oh so, oh, okay. handy so what's to the know? difference
1: between an ointment and a cream
2: uh, so a cream is in a water base where an ointment is in an oily base so the the cream will generally soak in whereas the the ointment is the one that feels like you've coated yourself in lard they were deliberately chosen words for you still gary yeah I, um, uh, I am so predictable <laughs> Um but yeah, so the oily based ointments get the medicine that's in your in your topical preparation into the skin a little bit better than a cream does and and you know, if you if you've got more severe eczema, then you'll probably have a stronger steroid cream and it will be more likely to be in an ointment base rather than a cream
1: okay so i'm I'm now also thinking that that the wellness world has all sorts of things in ointments, don't they, with their essential oils and other oh. What, what is an essential oil as opposed to a, not, a, a non-essential oil?
2: <laughs> an Isn't es- it to do with, like, essence? Essence than, of yeah. Yeah. Es- essential. It is. Yeah. So
0: essential oils are just a term for um, when you're distilling oils out of uh, usually – a plant of some sort that has a strong fragrance. Mm. So those fragrance molecules are what you're pulling out and they're usually in oil form. Um, so the thing with oil and that kind of relates back to ointments, um, which is really handy to know, Trent, by the way, I had no idea. I see. and an, Yes,
1: that is really good.
0: <laughs> I, I thought, uh, you know, I've always thought of ointments as, you know, something that you might make at home as, as, as a, as a kind of you know like if you're making an avocado face mask it's kind of like it's just a little home (laughs) remedy not a you know
2: i I can honestly say that i have never prescribed anyone an avocado face mask no no
0: i didn't think so (laughs) um but uh essential (laughs) essential oils give this idea that there's this very pure distilled essence uh basic oil from a Uh, herbaceous, um, fragrant plant. I should also add medicinal. And and so it's believed to have medicinal properties. So basically, if you get a a, a lot of lavender or if you get some rose petals and you stick it in some water and you have a a very basic distilling apparatus, you can distill the oils that give that fragrance. Um, Some of them do have some pharmaceutical property, uh, but they're also not usually single kinds of oils. There's actually a collection of different molecules that give that fragrance, um, and that's what will often end up in an essential oil.
1: Beautiful. We have learnt things today. Thank you, Silvano and Baxter's, for that choice. And finally... Uh, I'm afraid it's back to politics, the inevitability (laughs) of politics, Uh, each episode of this pod over the last few months. uh, I have been consulting the oracles of wisdom uh, at the betting markets, which, uh, 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 yes, uh, betting markets are either the ultimate source of all truth and wisdom or a terrible thing that you should avoid. However, over the last few months, um, I've been tracking the odds. And look, a couple of months back, it was flipping between... Labour or coalition win, a payout of about a dollar eighty five for the dollar, depending on who was ahead at the time. But in recent weeks the market has been getting more and more confident that it will be a Labour win on May the twenty first or earlier, if it's earlier. On Thursday, when we recorded the last episode, the price had dropped all the way down to $1.55 for a Labour win. And now, on the afternoon of the 15th of January, just two days later, the odds have narrowed again to $1.50 for a Labour win, which uh, I don't know how that translates into odds, but they're fairly certain uh, this is sports bet they'll pay out $1.50 for a Labour win, but $2.57 now for a coalition win. Are they right? Will it be a Labor win?
0: Will we be able
1: to tell the difference? (laughs) I mean, that's a separate question, I I think.
0: I see what you did there.
1: But that that is a point. Would you like to expand on that, trend?
2: Oh, uh, just that, um, you know, Anthony Albanese has obviously been following a small target sort of strategy so far and is still talking out of both sides of his mouth about wanting to reduce greenhouse emissions while supporting coal mining jobs. And so, um, you know, I, I uh, will will very much change if we get another major party in. I don't know. I, I guess I would be hopeful that um, if a number of these independent climate-focused um, in you know, people who have um, been working through the Climate 200 group get in, then, then we may see some positive action. But um, look, you know, it's... Yeah, it's hard to be particularly enthused about politics at the moment, isn't it?
1: It is. It is. Uppolly, do you wish to comment on this?
0: Well, to or be we'll honest, just I have. go away and cry. Well, we could do that. As I mean, that's kind of inevitable anyway. So, I think I honestly have no idea. But the the skeptic, um, sorry, the optimist in me just assumes that Morrison will be returned, though perhaps with you know a bit of a does he have a majority? I can't even remember. Sorry, I've been, I've been overseas for One seat. He yeah, yeah, has a
1: majority of one seat. There you
0: go. So he, uh, I think there's a degree of contrarianism within the voting public, um, where they might go, actually, if we're going to return it, we're going to return it with a massive majority. Um, but the other thing is that people seem wow. to forgive him. People seem to forgive him for his transgressions. I don't know whether people are now finally fed up after two years of COVID and mm. two years of this dude he's, going on. He's fucked on. up
2: pretty badly in the last few months. Uh,
0: he, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean that's know, what I mean.
1: It's it, it, the, the market slid, you know, five cents at five percentage points, if you like, in the last 48 hours.
0: Right. But, I mean... While I do agree that perhaps the, the betting markets are a good indicator, um, I think that doing it, checking it day to day versus month to month trends. Uh, sorry, I'm not, I'm not trying to be rude to you. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I, I, I'm not going to base it on that because people still are, uh, are forgiving and forgetful, I find, when it comes to Morrison. And I don't understand why. <laughs> and I, mm, that is something that I struggle that's with. True. And there's, uh,
2: there's a lot of time. Until the, until the election. Yeah. Absolutely. People, people have short memories. That's mm. very
0: much the case. People have short memories and they also might be like, well, we should maybe give them a little bit more time to you know, get things together. So uh, I remain an extreme sceptic about an Albanese win.
1: Mm. Well, there you go. That does seem to be a message that's come through in all the recent episodes that the election is Labor's to lose, not Morrison's to win, and we're not seeing a good sign. On that uh, less than positive note... I would like to say thank you very much to Dr. Trent Yarwood and Upali Divisekra.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: Thanks again, still. Well, as uh,
1: I've said that, our uh, conversation was recorded a week ago on the fifteenth of January. It's now Saturday the twenty-second, and a week later, the sports bets odds have shortened for a Labor uh, win even further. It's down now from a dollar fifty to a dollar forty for a Labor win, for a Coalition uh, win out to two dollars eighty-five. So Upali said, "Look at the trends." The trends are uh, just continuing uh, to predict a Labor win. But, yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, And we mentioned um, my health record in there. I have posted a link to all my writing on that. I was amazed to find that I have written 50 articles that mention my health record in some way, shape or form. That's just amazing. I still don't use it. I will not use it. Neither will Dr. Trent. Waste of money. Well, that's all the edict for now. If you've enjoyed it, tell your friends. Go to the 9 pmediccom slash tip and empty your wallet. Uh, the next episode will be a uh, week after this coming one. It'll be all about the International Space Station archaeological project and space stuff. Until then, I'm still Gary wash your
2: hands. Yeah. Yeah, wash your hands. We, we didn't actually
0: talk about Novak. Good. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.